Right. Uh, good evening, everybody. Um, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Michael Barzillay. I'm the head of the management department and a professor of uh, public management. And I'm glad that you've turned out for, I think, what will be a very, very good uh, evening, uh, learning a lot about how to take management and other kinds of theory and, and actually provide a lot of knowledge about how to solve field problems that everybody uh, in any organization uh, will encounter. It goes by different names. Uh, one is uh, replication, um, but in the title of the book that's being presented, it's uh, Scaling Up uh, Excellence. Uh, our speakers probably is known to many of you. I'm looking around the room, definitely known to many of you. Uh, Robert Sutton, uh, professor uh, at Stanford University in the School of Engineering and specifically in, in management science. Uh, he's written, obviously, many uh, academic works in, in management, uh, but followed up with a whole series of uh, very interesting, uh, very, very thoughtful books, very scholarly books, on management, but targeted uh, to uh, an audience of, uh, of uh, what we might call practitioners or general readers. Um, some of them have unforgettable titles. Uh, many of you will have heard about the, uh, and I'll use the American pronunciation here, the no asshole rule. Um, and I know that uh, when I took over the department, I had the pleasure of presenting my predecessor with a copy of that book uh, because he had done uh, so much to implement it. Um, uh, uh, this book is uh, is uh, co-authored uh, with a colleague at Stanford. Is it Huggy? Huggy, uh, Hi, Reba, Huggy. Huggy Rao, and um, uh, the basic theme is about uh, how to spread uh, practices that uh, that work uh, to the point that they actually make a collective uh, difference. Um, uh, for here's a, a logistical thing uh, for those who are Twitter users in the audience. The hashtag for today's event is uh, what I call number sign, uh, LSE scaling up, uh, one uh, word. The evening's event is being recorded and, uh, in principle, uh, would normally be made available as a podcast, uh, presuming there are no technical uh, difficulties uh, involved. Um, many of you will, I think, be uh, taken in by the uh, talk and will want to have a copy of the book, which you can do for a modest price. Uh, the books are available outside, uh, and you can uh, add to the value of the book by having it signed by the uh, first, first author, author who will remain here available uh, for, uh, for signing. Uh, the, the talk will go on for the usual length of time, half an hour, 40 minutes, after which there will be Q&A, which I'll moderate. Uh, would you join me in welcoming our speaker, Professor Robert Sutton? All right. Well, thanks so much. It's great to see all of you be in the, be in the UK. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to, as advertised, talk about some of the main ideas in our book on, uh, on scaling up excellence. And I was just informed that Sid Winter's in the audience, so I've, I've bastardized some of your work, so I apologize in advance. Um, and, um, and, and let me sort of get going here. So the, the name of the book is uh, Scaling Up Excellence. This is my co-author, Huggy Rao. I could tell you a whole story about how we took this bizarre picture, but I won't. Um, essentially, what happened in the way that we got interested in this, in this book um, was about seven years ago, uh, Huggy and I started an executive program. Um, called, it doesn't matter what it's called. It's called Customer Focused Innovation. 
And um, we had kind of an interesting experience that um, the executives in the program um, kept essentially telling us stories about the companies that they were part of. And they all would sort of end with the same sort of theme, which was, we're really good at doing it in this one unit, uh, but we don't know how to spread it. So that was one sort of hint, and they'd say, call the scaling problem. And then the other thing that happened was that um, we started noticing, I'm in Silicon Valley, where people are even now more hysterical about entrepreneurship than they were in the past. It's just a frenzy. It's, it will all crash, I'm sure of that. But I can, you can tell it's going to crash, but I don't know when. Um, whenever you, use, you, you, you would use the word scaling, they would get so excited that uh, it's sort of like the old Steve Jobs product lust thing. They didn't know what it was, but they wanted it. So sort of between all this, we just sort of poked around this about seven years ago. And we there's the book. And we, it, and, and we tried framing it in a bunch of different ways. But the way we kept coming back to, both in terms of a way that was easy to understand it and easy, easy for us to study and explain it was a, a, a very simple sort of problem or question that's actually very difficult to resolve, which is essentially you've got an organization or a network and there's something good there, and how do you spread it further as a program expands, as an organization expands without screwing it up? So that scaling without screwing it up, that's what that's sort of the problem that we saw we tried to solve. We're not the only people who tried to solve this. There's lots and lots of people, um, including Sid, who have, have tried to address this seriously. But this is kind of our take on it. One thing, and I don't know if this was a good idea or a bad idea, but one thing that we did in the course of this book, compared to other business books that I've written, is I think we presented it 100 times to different uh, audiences, everything from people who ran prisons to people, to federal judges, not federal judges, state judges who were trying to spread uh, more efficient practices for litigation. So to standard Silicon Valley entrepreneurs, to folks at Procter & Gamble, to, to try to come up with something that rang true to them, but still had some academic and logical uh, respectability. So it'll be up to you to judge in part, but, but we tried to use a customer-focused approach. Uh, and to give you an example of some of the range of scaling situations we looked at, where uh, the goal is to spread something good from those who have it to those who don't, there's a little startup started by two of our students, Ankit and Akshay, called um, Pulse, Pulse News. We had multiple interviews and visited them multiple times as they grew from 4 to 20 people. And 4 to 12 was hell. They actually had a point where, and I'll talk about this later, where when they hit about 12 people, the entire thing sort of fell apart. And then once they split into smaller teams, it started working again. And they added a little bit of process. Uh, somebody else, somebody who we've been in touch with for many years, one of our good friends, Claudia Kochka, Claudia Kochka under A.G. Laffley, when A.G. Laffley was CEO, now is CEO again because the guy they put in his place kind of screwed up. Um, so A.G.'s back. Um, so A.G. Um, charged Claudia Kochka with spreading essentially what we would call design thinking, uh, some a form of customer-focused innovation throughout Procter & Gamble. She started with just two or three folks, and now in one business, she's working actually on Mr. Clean, and now there's 300 people working in diverse businesses. So to us, that's a scaling problem. A really big one, the 100,000 Lives campaign in the United States. Um, our healthcare system is just a mess, as probably many of you in this room know. I think we get less for our money than any healthcare system in the world. If you look at the evidence, but the 100,000 Life campaign is an interesting exception to this. 
in that what happened was uh, that a, a small nonprofit called the Institute for Health Improvement, ran by a guy named Don Berwick, started um, a, a process where hospitals that were good at doing very simple things, like getting physicians to, and nurses to wash their hands, would spread those practices from those that had it to those who don't. I am not the greatest quantitative researcher in the, in the world. I was trained as a quantitative researcher, but I've done a lot of qualitative research. But my co-author, Huggy Rao, is a truly great quantitative researcher, and he gave his doctoral class, PhD class, uh, the data set to try to figure out if, in fact, it, um, 100,000 lives were saved by this campaign. And Huggy's students' estimates is that during, the, if you look at the beginning and the end of the 18-month campaign, there were about 132,000 less people died in American hospitals. So, so it, it may have worked. You know, correlation is not causation, but there's some sign it worked. Another one we also looked in, um, this is what we call the social sector, that's really interesting. We're actually doing a new case on them. Really interesting startup, for-profit schools. First one started in Nairobi in 2009, and it's, they call it Academy in the Box. It's sort of like the Starbuckization, it's a terrible word, of, um, of schools, and, 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 it was, and it was started very, very standardized. Um, where essentially um, uh, teachers, the teachers teach on hacked Nook tablets and teach every student in every class in pretty much exactly the same way. Now they're drifting from that a little bit, but watching them sort of scale up this process. Oh, and the other thing I should emphasize is they teach to very, very poor children, the sort of the very bottom, but it's a for-profit school, and if you send your kid there, it costs about $5 a month. And then all the payments are, are um, through cell phones. Really interesting Silicon Valley sort of funded startup. It's now the largest private school system in Africa. There's some signs that the educational outcomes are far superior to, um, to private schools, expect, especially in Kenya. But the interesting thing there is, to, is we followed them as they've sort of grown. And they, and they really do this intense sort of socialization and screening of teachers. And we'll talk about how important that is in a minute. So, so that, those are examples of the situations that we've looked at. Uh, our core message, if we were going to sort of pick one, is, is that um, organizations that seem to scale well versus badly, there's essentially social agreement about um, one way to put this, social norms, what's sacred, what's taboo. To give you just a really quick example, i got a couple other examples here. When I presented this at Amazon about um, five weeks ago, six weeks ago, this was a very diverse group, about 150 people, I said, what's sacred here? Immediately, they all said the customer. I said, what's taboo? They said, wasting money. They are the only American company I know of that's cheaper than Walmart. They are amazingly cheap. And, and, but it is one of those things that they're cultural guides that people understand. Uh, another example, and, and this is one of also one of our sort of inferences or conclusions or hypotheses, is that the faster an organization scales, the more important it is that they do things to instill a mindset or to make clear what's sacred and what's taboo. An extreme case of this is Facebook, which of course has grown absolutely like mad. They work harder than any organization I know of at brainwashing new employees. For the first six weeks that you are hired as a new engineer, you don't know what job you're going to go into. The, what happens is they bring, you in, they bring you in, they give you a speech. This guy, Chris Cox, who was employee number 30, is now head of product. He gives you the speech. And then immediately, you start making changes in the code base. So we asked Chris. Chris was a, a guest in our uh, scaling class. What's a successful first week at Facebook? It means you've made a change in the code base that you can show your mother or father. 
And, 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 and what they're doing, and you do this for 12 or 13 different projects, and then towards the end, they assign you to a job. You don't know what your job's going to be. But the reason is, is that you live this move fast and break things mindset, that they, they really mean it. And you know, one thing to be clear, uh, Facebook <laughs> screws up all sorts of things. But uh, this is one of the things they're really clear on, is getting people to live this mindset. And of course, a, a set of norms or mindset that's good for one organization may not be right for the other. There's another Silicon Valley firm called VMware, and um, they make they have all sorts of different software. They make a whole array. And I asked the head of engineering, I said, so do you have a move fast and break things mindset? He said, no, especially in our unit that makes software for nuclear submarines. That would be an error. But, but the main thing is there has to be some sort of social agreement. One thing that we would say in terms of organizations that consistently spread and sustain excellence is one thing they do have, and you see this at Facebook. I was at, uh, at Google earlier today. They have what uh, Brad Bird, Brad Bird's the Academy Award winning director of uh, The Incredibles, Ratatouille, uh, The Ghost Protocol. He switched to human beings for his first movie with human beings, was 54 years old. Brad would describe this as relentless restlessness, this notion, this feeling that things are never quite good enough. Oh, just as a plug of another author, and not even from my same publisher. Um, there's, a, there's a great new book called Creativity Incorporated by Ed Catmill. I think it's the best business book I've ever read about uh, the rise of Pixar. So we're going to read one business book this year. I would say to read that. Brad's disgust in it, but that's what reminds me of it. Okay. So this is the stuff I'm going to cover. I'll probably go to about a quarter after. Um, so the big lessons... Uh, the first big lesson is that when we see organizations where um, excellence as defined locally, you might want to ask me what I mean by excellence and back me in a corner afterwards. You want to have some fun with me, I'll squirm. Um, um, are organizations where there's a set of social norms where, um, where essentially people feel as if I own the place and therefore I'm obligated to do my job extremely well and the place owns me. And so, so there's, there's a mutual obligation where people put pressure on one another to conform and perform in the way that they think is appropriate. And this is just an example of hospitals that have a high donation rate. But in general, if you look at research on hospitals that have good versus bad health outcomes, especially surgical outcomes, things like getting people to actually um, administer drugs properly and everything, there's social pressure where everybody feels obligated to do their job properly and to call others, on, others out when they don't do it. So, so this, this notion of having strong norms where there's a feeling of mutual obligation would be uh, the first lesson. The second um, lesson is when you think about scaling. So in fact, our first chapter, I guess our introduction is called the problem of more. Because you think about scaling, it's a problem of spreading something you think is good to more people, more places as a program or organization expands. So it's like a problem of more. But our argument is that it's also a problem of less that in the best organizations, the best leaders are always thinking about things that they need to subtract that are getting in the way, slowing them down, screwing things up. Uh, so an example, these, you might not be able to read this. These guys are wearing these stupid hats, and it says, I don't know how it started either. All I know is it's part of our corporate culture. <laughs> and there's things that people will do over and over and over again in a mindless sort of way, and they won't be able to get rid of. Um, an example, one organization... 
I did an ethnography of in the mid-90s, and I'm still a fellow at, is IDEO, which is, uh, how many of you know what IDEO is? Just as a, oh, a lot of you. It's a famous innovation firm. They used to just do product development. Now they apply design thinking and creativity to anything, including organizational strategy, because they, they get higher rates for organizational strategy than like designing the first computer mouse. So in the mid-90s, um, so I was um, doing an ethnography there in the old days. This is David Kelly, the chairman now, uh, uh, then CEO. And I used to go to these Monday morning meetings where there'd be 60 people there, and they'd all be uh, sitting in one room. And David was absolutely masterful at getting everybody to say something, at, at, at commenting about everybody. It just felt a great way to start the week. Then they grew to 150, it was complete hell. It did not work at all, so they broke into multiple studios. But it's just one of those things that sort of what got them there won't, didn't get them to the next place. And then there's a more interesting case of things that you do or your organization does that um, everybody does but are actually quite stupid. And a potential candidate for many organizations is performance evaluations. If, if, so in the US we have the FDA, so if you looked and you assumed the performance evaluations were a drug, um, they would not get FDA approval, essentially. In about 40% of the cases, they make things better. This is my reading of the IO psychology literature. About 40% of the times, they make things worse. And 20% of the time, they don't have much effect at all. And, and there are, and, and at least I would argue that organizations that do it better are ones where the yearly conversation are at least somewhat linked to happen, what happens throughout the rest of the year, which is many times not the case. But a good example, this, this woman's name is Donna Morris. She's head of HR at Adobe, quite large firm. Um, Donna got very good evidence after she took over as head of HR that perf- the yearly performance evaluation system at Adobe was doing harm. It took 80,000 person hours. Um, after it was over in February, um, the best people would tend to leave. And, um, and, oh, and then they had a pulse survey, which was a survey of how people were filling Adobe. The numbers would always go down. So they actually got rid of it about two years ago. And what they have is that there's no, there is no performance evaluation of employees. You do give them, if you're a manager, an annual raise or bonus. And there is a system for getting rid of employees who are bad. But you're supposed to do it on a sort of constant basis. And, and my favorite part is, is, and we're doing a case study now on her. In fact, um, I'll be down there on Friday at Adobe um, when I get back home. And she said, I took the forms away from them so they'd actually have to talk to one another. <laughs> and it looks like, and you know, this is, they've now got two years of data, but, it, but one of the main indications, in addition to the fact that on the Pulse survey, people are happier and report liking it, that there is evidence that, um, that people who are leaving are the right people and people who are staying, if you are the right people for them. Okay. So, so that's the first one. The second one, this is where I completely mangle Sid Winter's stuff, so I apologize um, in particular. Um, I, I think you call this replication versus adaptation. Yeah, so I, so I gave some speeches, this will tell you the truth since Sid's here, where I'd say replication versus adaptation, and the executives wouldn't look very interested. So, and then we started using this language, which, by the way, I've been criticized for it, but uh, people remember it, which is Catholicism versus Buddhism. People remember that. And where it's come from, since I'll blame the person who came up with it, is my friend uh, Michael Deering, um, amazing person. Uh, His last job was head of eBay North America. He's an early stage venture capitalist. He's funded 80 companies since 2006. You don't want to know how rich he is. It's incredible. Um, He's very good. Um, Anyways, so in the early days of the Stanford Design School, where we're supposed to be spreading design thinking, 
were sitting around. Michael, who was a, raised as a good Catholic boy, who liked to tell you he was altar boy of the month more than 12 times. And, and he said, so are we going to be Catholics? where we insist that everybody replicate exactly the same thing in every class and everywhere where design thinking is done? Or are we going to be Buddhists and let them sort of riff off of it? And, and in the process of doing this book, um, and this is where I especially started reading Sid and others' works in, in more detail, um, we, we started writing our chapter on decision, which is chapter two of the book, and there were all these decisions that we had sort of up on a little board. And whenever we would start writing, when we'd go back and read it, we'd go back to basically this decision. So this is mostly what this chapter is about. And then an example of organizations that really replicate our very Catholic model, In-N-Out Burger. How many of you heard of In-N-Out Burger? This is a cultural test. Okay. About a quarter, somebody's eating there. This is their entire menu. They're all exactly the same. They have hardly any ingredients. They're corporate controlled. Even, and I've been to internet, I've probably been to 15 and out burgers in my life, and I probably have the figure to show it. Um, and um, and it, even the, the perkiness of the employees almost seems to be replicable. It's like the, the degree to which they're homogenized is unbelievable. And, uh, and it works much, much more than McDonald's, for example. But the re- replication doesn't always work. Because what happens is sometimes you'll move into a market or a different sort of environment and it doesn't work and you figure out that things are sort of, sort of falling apart. And a good example of two uh, US chains that tried to move to China, one failed, the other one succeeded, is Home Depot. How many of you know what Home Depot is? Since, oh, so uh, basically a big store, you go into to buy a bunch of stuff and, and assemble at home somehow or another. This China, which is a do-it-for-me um, culture, not a do-it-yourself culture, they opened 12 of these in China, total failure. And as one of my Chinese students actually said to me, in addition to the do-it-for-me culture, if you're rich enough to shop at a Home Depot in China, you're rich enough to have somebody assemble it for you. So that's the other cultural problem. IKEA, which is massively successful in China, um, and, and they sell kind of the same stuff there they do most places in the world. The main difference, just a little bit of difference in the stock, but not much, is, is because they're in a do-it-for-me culture, they have assembly, and they have delivery, because many people there don't have cars, and it's actually been quite successful there. But the other thing they're doing, because I just, it, since we wrote the book, I presented this to a group of Chinese executives, that, that they're also training their customers to assemble the stuff. So I, I, t- I taught 50 young Chinese CEOs, this is about three or four weeks ago, and I said, so the official story is the Chinese don't assemble things. And they said, we don't assemble anything but a Kia. So they're getting trained. So it's sort of interesting. It's sort of like, guys, they're so big, it's a two-way street. And another example of a really kind of cool, what we call Buddhist organization, is in the US we have something called Joie de Vivre Hotels, started by a Stanford MBA named Chip Conley. And real quickly, just in the name of time, we're going to spend too much time on this. Um, what they do is for each new hotel they open, they pick the magazine that will reflect the spirit of the boutique hotel, and then they kind of design everything around that. So for example, the very first hotel that they opened was called the Renaissance in San Francisco, and the Rolling Stone magazine was sort of what it was around. So a tattooed rocker was sort of the person they designed it for. 
The newest one was in Palo Alto, and you might guess it's Wired Magazine is the magazine, and it's built around sort of the reader of Wired Magazine. So it's an interesting sort of way to have a boutique hotel and have some Catholicism, but also it, it, my friend Steve Barley is always using fancy words. He'd say this is variegated, that, that you have, um, if you will, you have uh, high variance or low variance within units and high variance across units. So that, but that's sort of their solution. Um, just one thing that, uh, you know, and this is from the Atul Gawande article that was mentioned, just one thing that's sort of interesting just as an academic, and, and, uh, and in my introduction I think this was sort of implied, so I've actually been a psychologist in the engineering school for 30 years, and, and also I'm a faculty member, so I always think that I'm so special the rules should not apply to me, because I'm different, of course. But, and, and I think a lot of us feel this way, that we're so special, in, in, in a lot of situations where people like me want to be Buddhist and stuff like that, really Catholicism is good for you. And one of the places this is really clear is in medicine, and this is why this Atul Gawande article is so interesting. Essentially, this guy, Dr. John Wright, um, eventually convinced his seven other colleagues to use much more standardized procedures, including equipment and knee replacement operations. You can see the numbers. Costs are cut by 50%. All these other great outcomes. Most of his colleagues still hate him as a result. So, so there's that notion of identity can really get in the way of what is actually rational replication. Okay, so here are some of the principles. I, I promise to be done by 20 after, so some I may skip by because I know we're going to have a conversation. One is um, link hot causes the cool solutions when you want to spread stuff. My co-author, Huggy Rao, is a social movement theorist, so that was kind of interesting to write a paper like this with a social movement theorist. And his argument essentially is... Um, if you look at social movements of all kind, if you just make a rational argument, it doesn't have much effect on people because they don't get any emotional arousal. Um, but if you just get them emotional aroused and you don't have anywhere to point them, also bad things happen. In the U.S., we had, I don't did you have the Occupy movement here in London? Yeah. Is it still going on? What's happened in the U.S. is they get really, really excited, but they never could agree about the few things we should all do. So you've got to have the one-two punch of the especially collective emotional arousal and then the specific steps. And a great example of this is the 100,000 Lives campaign, where even though it was kicked off by a very small nonprofit, uh, there was never more than 200 people in this nonprofit. And in fact, the head of the campaign team, Joe McCannon, who we, we, we'd star, he's a star in the book, and we talked to him repeatedly, his campaign team only had 12 people in it. Um, but what they did was they brought together 4,000 leaders from the healthcare system in the United States. People ran large hospital systems, insurers, people from government, uh, people from the American Medical Association, the American Nurses Association, and, um, and essentially got them all cranked up. And they did it with two things. Sorrel King, whose daughter Josie died in John Hopkins Hospital. She died as a result of preventable medical mistakes. What happened was that, was that um, Sorrel said, please join the campaign. I don't want you know, some, another daughter, like, you know, another case like my daughter. And my favorite one, and this story comes from Joe McCannon, is there's this, uh, this woman's sister, Mary Jean Ryan, who then was CEO of one of the largest Catholic health systems in um, the United States. And the way Joe, who is also Catholic, described, um, described her message, it was essentially, if you don't sign up for the campaign, you're going to go to hell, was sort of the subtext. So that's literally a hot cause. So hot cause, cool solution. Um, just to give you another real quick one, 
because that was a life or death matter. Um, many of us, I, I think this is true in the UK too, but in the United States in the last 15, 20, 25 years or so, we've had a craft beer movement. Huggy studied the craft beer movement extensively. He's also studied um, French wine versus, uh, any times there's food and alcohol. He has like, he gets Stanford to pay and then he studies them. <laughs> I'm not joking, so he's pretty smart. But one of the movements he studied was the craft beer movement. If you look at this language, it's, it's, like, it's like, you know, watery beer is just like this complete enemy to get them sort of like all emotionally aroused. But then you have people like Fritz Maytag, who started something called Anchor Steam Beer, who was one of the early leaders. And then what he would do was teach his people. And also there was a lot of cooperation within the industry so that they spread the best both marketing and uh, practices for brewing beer. Uh, the key thing that Huggy really um, made sure that we emphasize in this chapter is when you look at social movements, one of the reasons that hot causes work so well is when they're done right, they get people emotionally aroused so they think less about their individual self-interest, which of course some in the London School of Economics that have been uh, uh, you know, documented so well by economists. But when people get collectively aroused in, in, in their pride or aggression, is aroused, they tend to do things more for the collective good. So this was also what Steve Jobs was the master of. He never, there was always somebody who he hated and was getting everybody around him to hate so that they would get aroused. And, you know, sometimes it was Disney, sometimes it was IBM, towards the end of his life it was Google. There was always somebody who he hated and was getting people aroused. That was part of his deal. Um, the second one is straight uh, social psychology 101, but I think is worth mentioning. Um, when it comes to spreading a set of behaviors or a mindset, so beliefs and behaviors, uh, lots of evidence that um, no matter what people say, it's not so important. Once you get people marching in the right direction, whether they're agreeing with you or not, their, behavior, their beliefs will change to fit their behavior. This is, as I say, social psych 101. Um, at boot camp, that's a quote from uh, Chris Cox, we don't talk about the culture very much, we learn it by living it. That's how militaries do effective socialization. And so this is one of the keys to spreading stuff. And, and this one's a very short one, but it's so important, it's worth doing. And a good friend of mine, one of the heroes of the book, this is Bonnie Simi, very brave woman, three-time Olympian in the luge. She's a pilot, she's also a JetBlue executive. Uh, so how many of us um, have heard about, how many of you have heard the story, uh, February 14, 2007, JetBlue had a disaster at Kennedy Airport where literally thousands of people were stuck on planes, so it's one of our local airlines. Almost went under because of all these logistics problems, especially shutting and reopening an airport, especially Kennedy in storms. So after doing, having two failed top-down efforts, Bonnie essentially brought together a group of people from throughout the company, without any budget, by the way. She just told them fly in for a day, and said, well, let's map the process of closing and reopening Kennedy with Post-it notes and put pink Post-its everywhere where something's broken. That's how the process started. Um, she hadn't spent a day doing it, and she said, how many of you think this will succeed? None of them raised their hands, because they'd been failing. And she said, well, we just go to one more meeting. We just go to one more meeting. And eventually, they sort of bought. They eventually sort of bought it. But it's a classic sort of thing that they did not have the belief. But she got them to keep sort of going and going and going until eventually it spread throughout the company. And they're probably the best U.S. airlines when when a when a storm hits Kennedy now. In fact, at least for saving their own money in particular. Okay, the next one. How am I doing? Well, I should speed up a little bit. Okay, so so the cognitive load problem. So here's. 
when we look at organizations, programs as they grow, so here's the basic problem. So as they grow, it's really hard to avoid more complexity. In fact, at least my take on organizations is as they get larger, you need more hierarchy, you need more process, and you need more specialized positions. And, and there's some people who, and we might want to talk about this, who say you've got to banish bureaucracy, organizations don't need, need bureaucracy. But I, I can't figure out how to have an organization that, as it gets larger, gets somewhat more complex. And maybe we want to talk about that. And, but nonetheless, there's this problem as they get more complex, it's, they start putting more cognitive load on people. So you got A.G. Laffley say, keep it, keep it Sesame Street simple. There's good reason for that. Lots and lots of evidence that as you put cognitive load on human beings, we, we uh, get worse and worse at doing every individual thing we're doing, and we lose our will to do what we believe is correct. So a good little study that illustrates this. Classic little study. This is Baba Shiv, my colleague from the business school. He's in marketing. His famous cake study, just to oversimplify it, two groups. One group has to memorize a two-digit number, say 16. The other group, seven digits, let's say 3242257. They walk down a hallway, and they have to report to somebody at the end of the hallway either the seven-digit or the two-digit number. Um, the ones who have to memorize the seven-digit number ate 50% more cake. And it, it, it just a sort of notion, you start sort of losing your will. You look at what organizations do to people. Uh, they do things, they just put massive cognitive load on us all the time. They're not always very smart about it. And my favorite example in the book, and bless her heart, she let us use it. This is a chart put together by two very smart people. Scott Cook, who is co-founder of Intuit, uh, still chair, and um, also... Um, Karen um, Hansen, who's got a PhD in uh, psychology from Stanford. I actually chaired her uh, dissertation defense, so I know her very well. So, and you can't read this, and I'll even read you the title, Evoking Positive Emotion by Going Beyond Customer Expectation in Ease and Benefit Delivery Throughout the Customer Journey. This is a design for delight effort. They started Intuit about six years ago. Karen and Scott brought together 1,000 people at Intuit, presented this model, and said, we're going to do this. And people had two reactions. One, we don't know what the hell they're talking about. And the other one was, this too shall pass. And after trying to implement this thing for about six months, this is what they switched to. I'm not joking. This is the only picture in the book, actually. Um, so, and, and it did help implement it. And in fact, this is sort of the essence of design thinking in lots of ways. And there were many other changes that happened in the book. I talk about this in more detail, or we talk about this in more detail. But that idea of trying to make things as light as you can is important. But to go back to my point, there does come to be sort of a point in organizational life where you need this complexity. And this is where you know my friend Gary Hamill, I think, is completely wrong when he asks, do organizations need bureaucracy? Of course they need bureaucracy. They just need bureaucracies that are good. And there's little experiments that will show you what happened. And my favorite one is Larry Page. And this is very well documented. We, we talked to people from Google. We, we, we found it all sorts of places. Anyways, Google gets up to 400 people. This is a long time ago, probably 2001. And Larry is pissed because there's all these managers around. And he sees himself as an entrepreneur. He doesn't want any managers. So he fires all of them, OK? So you have a situation for two weeks where 200 engineers reported to one executive. It didn't work. 
Now Google, and we were just there today, Google has this incredible system where they are so focused on developing great first-line managers, monitoring them and firing them or moving them around when they're lousy. It's unbelievable. They've gone completely. Um, so, and we might want to talk about this in some in more detail, but the general mindset we see in organizations that are better at slowly adding process, bureaucracy, structure, whatever, is they give ground grudgingly. This is from VC Ben Horowitz, and I love this. This guy, Chris Fry, who's head of engineering at Twitter. I love it. Poor Chris. He couldn't get a job. He got a PhD in psychology. He couldn't get a job, so he had to go back to being a programmer. He's now the second high, highest paid person at Twitter. Um, anyhow, he's head of engineering. The, so his line is, the purpose of hierarchy is to destroy bad bureaucracy. And we can talk about what that means. Just to give you one thing that we really emphasize in the book, and there's lots of evidence, the notion that many hands make light work is a very dangerous half-truth. And in particular, as organizations get larger, one thing we found that they really have to watch very closely is group size. And to oversimplify the literature on group size, if you look at the difference between what happens between a group of people who are trying to do like a real task, not just sit and listen or have a presentation or something like that, or report out, when you go from 5 to 11 people, the, the amount of time that the group spends um, doing coordination and grooming, trying to maintain um, interpersonal, good interpersonal relationships, goes up ex exponentially, and the amount of time they spend actually doing the task goes down exponentially. And this comes from research by uh, my late and great uh, mentor, Richard Hackman, and many others since. And, and so this idea of keeping the working team small is essential. Um, I'll skip Valentine and Edmondson studies, but you look at McKinsey, the basic battle unit is the four-person um, engagement team, one engagement manager, three uh, consultants, and the Navy SEALs have basically the same structure. Okay, so that's my fourth one. Here's my fourth one is, so how do I describe this? Essentially, sometimes we describe this as a difference between spreading peanut butter and developing pockets of excellence. Um, in the situations we look at, and sometimes we're called in to give speeches and help with this process, in the worst organizations that are trying to spread something good, um, what they'll do is they'll have a speech, they'll have two or three days of training, and then they'll think that people are creative, they can practice lean manufacturing, pick whatever your latest management fad is. Um, or one of the examples we give in the book is they tried to make TSA screening agents more empathetic. Two days, all of them were trained for four hours, all 50-something thousand, it had no effect at all. Um, but where it really happens, what happens is you have real pockets of excellence that are developed and then spread more systematically. And of course, some sorts of knowledge can be spread more quickly. This is one of our favorite examples. So what happened was in, um, in Iraq, the US Army figured out, the soldiers figured out, one group of them, that there's a hand grenade, old Russian hand grenades, RKG3 hand grenades, that when they hit something soft, they didn't blow up, okay? So these one group of guys, they put trampolines on the side of their truck, okay? And then what happened was, this is a relatively simple thing to spread. It takes some material and stuff. There, there's a unit called the Army Center for Lessons Learned. So it was spread very quickly, and pretty soon you had several hundred trucks with trampolines on the side. So this is a simple one, but when it's a more complex behavior, um, like this is one example for a case we did um, at a Wyeth Pharmaceutical, where they're really fundamentally changing the way they're doing the work. In that case, 
it takes much longer. You've got to kind of develop these deep pockets of excellence and then spread them sort of one to the other. And, and we won't go this in a lot of detail, but this in the United States, one of the terrible mistakes that the Obama administration made, and they will now admit it was a terrible mistake, was trying to roll out that whole um, national health care system we have sort of all at once. That's not how you do an IT rollout. Um, okay, so that's the fourth one. The fifth one... This is a play on uh, Jim Collins' book, um, you know, Good to Great. Um, our sort of take on it is when it comes to spreading things that are good, spreading excellence, the first order of business is getting rid of the bad stuff. Um, since there's a lot of academics here, and some of you may know this article, my favorite academic article possibly of all time is, is called Bad is Stronger Than Good. It must be 25,000 words long. It's one of the longest, 20,000 words, one of the longest academic articles I've ever read. And they just go through. There's this heartbeat. Everything that's bad is stronger than good. And just to give you one example, my favorite one is interpersonal relationships. So what, what they show, nice longitudinal studies with multiple filmed interviews with married couples, that if you're in an interpersonal relationship and every time you have a bad interaction with your partner, you don't make it up with at least five good ones, things are not going to last. And there's other more workplace studies that for every time you have a bad interaction with your boss, if it isn't made up, a bad interaction with your boss packs five times the wallop on mood than a good interaction. Huggy dug up a study on cheating that shows it's incredibly, if you have three people in your social network who encourage you to cheat, it's virtually certain you will cheat if you're an undergraduate. And if one person encourages you, this is a longitudinal study done at UCLA, um, your chances of cheating go up 32 times. Quite careful study. In, 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 um, in a work group, so you've got one dead beater jerk. It cuts performance by 30 or 40%. So our argument is that, um, is that bad is so much stronger than good. If you're trying to spread excellence, the first order of business is to get rid of the bad stuff. And I'll give you two examples. Just one, one of the, our class guests is a guy named Barry Feld. He took over a West Coast chain of stores called Cost Plus World Market. There was 180 stores when he took over. He closed about 30 of them pretty quickly. Um, he visited all 180, being a good retail guy, both to figure out which ones to close. And as he said, to try to nip the very worst behavior in the bud. And for him, the two very worst behaviors when we asked him are, he said, I made sure that every employee greeted every customer when they came in. Because when you don't greet employees, two bad things happen. One is stealing goes up, and the other one is that sales go down. And the other thing he said, I always asked to go to the bathroom, because when the bathroom was dirty, it meant that a whole bunch of other things weren't being done well. So that's an example of it. And it's one of those classic business success stories, blah, blah, blah. They sold it for $26 a chair to something else. So it is a success stories. I'm sure there's plenty of executives, by the way, you know, in terms of Mia Culpa, who did exactly the right thing, and it still didn't work. But I think this was the right thing. Um, another example to return to our friend Chris Fry. So when Chris, so, um, so how many of you have any involvement with Twitter at all? Okay, so if you're an even medium-term Twitter user, they used to have terrible problems. The system was crashing constantly. The fail whale was there constantly. And if you talk to them internally, um, they, it was a complete nightmare. And so Chris was brought in as head of engineering. This is one of the reasons that he's the second highest paid employee. He was supposed to like fix the engineering organization. So he goes to his first meeting with the top eight people in engineering. And so he's talking to him and he says, so I'm talking, he said, they're not looking, they're all looking at their phones. 
They, they, I, and, and my favorite part is, so I ask them for a vote. They don't even look up their phones. They, they just keep voting. And, and we know the literature on cognitive load and multitasking. It's very well documented, especially um, by my, my late and great colleague, uh, Cliff Nast, did wonderful research on this, that multitasking does make you stupid. Um, even your young kids who tell you, my, my children used to say this to me, I'm a digital native dad. I can multitask. They cannot. We have all sorts of research with Stanford undergraduates who should be able to multitask if anybody can. They're terrible at it. And the one study you should know is that um, heavy p- multitaskers are worse at multitasking than light multitasking. So it even screws up your ability to multitask. Anyhow, so, so Chris knows this research, being a, being a good psychologist. So now he takes their phones away. And since this is Twitter, there's a tweet about it. And uh, so this is, a, this is, this is um, well, you can see the date, 228.14. So I, I first asked Chris if I could use this. This is like two weeks after the book was published, three weeks. And what it says is C.H. Fry rule, cell phones must be deposited with R.J. San Jose, that's his assistant, prior to the start of the meeting, and there's the cell phones at the table. And so in this case, you know, Chris's perspective is, um, they, you know, we had to clear out this sort of bad behavior so they could actually think. Okay, I'm into wrap-up. So, okay, so there's some of our principles. It looks a little different in the book. Uh, two parting thoughts. One of our sort of opening lines about scaling is that in every situation we've looked at that looks like fast, easy scaling, um, that's not the case. It's always felt like a groundwork where they're fighting it out every day. Things that make us nervous is when they say we don't have time to do, time to do it the way we really should, or we are always taking the path of least resistance. It's always difficult. In fact, there's a really interesting report by the Casey Foundation in which they looked among the projects or, that they funded, which ones tended to succeed versus not. These are educational innovations. And they called it the path of most resistance because the ones where they succeeded, they do all the difficult work. And there's also a footnote, and this is straight out of the Danny Kahneman playbook, that, um, that when it comes to scaling, despite these sort of crazy Silicon Valley entrepreneurs who think you're supposed to run around and work and work and work, as Danny Kahneman would say, there's times when you actually have to switch into that system two and actually think, or you're going to do something stupid. And I love this advice. This is advice from the Jerome Groupman yeah, got when he was a young physician, that instead of jumping in and doing something, operating at somebody, giving them a drug, sometimes the best advice is don't just do something, stand there. So there's sort of this argument for thinking and slowing down. And then the second one, and then I'm done, honest, um, so this is my friend, David Kelly. This is the second picture that you've seen of David. And David is, he's, he's the executive I know the best. He's, he's really not very representative. He's a very strange guy. But, but I've watched him being involved in two different scaling efforts. One is his own company, IDEO, from maybe about 80 people to about 600 now in multiple locations. The other one, David, who seems to be able to get away with all sorts of things that the rest of us can't, David is a tenure chaired professor in the engineering school. He's never written an academic article. He doesn't have a PhD. I have no evidence he can even read, even though he's co-authored a book. His brother, I think, did all of it. I'm not joking. Once I, this is, I guess I am joking, but it, it's true. Once I asked David, once David asked me to talk to a donor about research, and he wrote in the email, the last book I read was Gidget Goes to the Beach. I mean, he is not like he's a doer. He's not. He's not like. Um, he, he's not somebody who reads. So anyways, one of the things that David, I saw him say to people at um, IDEO and over and over again, is he said to me in recent years in our scaling effort um, at Stanford, the Stanford D School, 
is that if you expect that things will ever be neat and clean and orderly, you are living in a fool's paradise. Things are always sort of screwed up. And, and what happens is, and, and this is one thing I said at a conference with academic colleagues and was sort of, sort of calling us all out for this, is when you write cases about organizations, very often what happens is you have to get their approval. People like really neat, clean, pretty stories, some of which I've made them, you know, sort of the sin of telling you here. But in reality, if at least the organizations I know well, IDEO, Facebook I know very well, Google, I have a bunch of students at Google, Every day, for the senior management, whatever they were doing just seemed like hell, and it seemed like it was all going to fall apart every minute. And there's a distinction I like to make, and I'm going to swear, because my dad's a World War II veteran. My dad used to um, make this distinction um, between snafu and foobar. So snafu is situation normal, all fucked up. It's always that way. And foobar is fucked up beyond all recognition. And, and sort of my assessment is that, is that in organizations, the goal is snafu is normal. You just want to sort of avoid foobar, I guess. And I guess that's sort of my last words. So I think that that's enough. And I've sort of tortured you sufficiently. Um, comments, questions, reactions? I don't know how here. We'll just sort of leave with David Kelly. I understand you're very active at, at questioning, so I'm ready. Go after me. All right. Yes, sir. Oh, how does this work? Microphones. Um, do, 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 can you give us a, a, sort of a few fundamental difference between scaling up within a single organization versus scaling up between organizations versus scaling up in the public? I'm thinking public health, where you're scaling up across a homogenous or whatever very... Uh, a large population. Well, well so, well, well, to me, those are three different sorts of spreading stuff. And, and we could do typologies. And, and, and yes, it's different doing it within organization as opposed to across organizations as opposed to creating chains as opposed to growing. So yes, there are very many differences. And we try to distinguish between them initially. And then we end up with one of these typology charts. That this one, so, so what we've gone is we've gone the imperial route and claim that we're more interested in the similarities than the differences. Although there are important differences. I mean, the difference between Ankit and Akshay um, scaling up their organization when they went from four to 20 was certainly massively different than, um, than what happened in the 100,000 Lives campaign. But I would still say there are some interesting similarities. So they had to deal with the Buddhism versus Catholicism dilemma. Um, they had to do things like have a hot cause and cool solution. They had to do connect and cascade. So for better or for worse, we're taking this sort of imperial method. But we tried to do more slicing and dicing. Um, and, and if I would put on my academic hat and would submit this to a peer-reviewed article um, journal, I would probably get slaughtered for some of this, to be perfectly honest. But the advantage of writing a business book is we can be more sloppy and more general. So, uh, so I both plead guilty to that and to say we tried to make it more narrow, but so far we, we seem to have gotten away, at least in our mind, God knows, um, with, with this sort of more broad approach. But we're, in the short answer is we're more interested in the similarities and the differences. But yes, there are important differences. And, and, and I will say that you know, when I work with different companies, uh, they will tend, uh, let's just take two extremes, uh, scaling, uh, getting rid of assholes at Microsoft. This is actually a problem they're working on right now. 
Uh, I was just there three weeks ago. I'm not kidding. They have a problem. And the way that they define an asshole is people who are selfish and put their needs ahead of the company. That's a problem of, of getting rid of the bad and spreading the good. Uh, versus sort of growing a startup from five to 50, there's enough similarities that at least we think we can sort of tell a story. But yeah, we're glossing over important differences. Anything else? In argument, right. uh, I, uh, uh, go for it. I don't know who calls on them. Well, normally I do, but you oh, seem oh, no, to be doing a good job of it. <laughs> Uh, just, I don't know your norms and traditions. Uh, so the, the only thing that's sacred here is that when you start to speak, if you could just identify yourself, that oh, would be helpful. I like, sacred. I like that he used the word. Never guess where I got it from. <laughs> Hi, Bob. I'm David. I'm a startup founder. And I was just wondering you, uh, what you said at the end was really resonant about it's always messy yes. at, at the time. And I just wondered whether, obviously, kind of you can join the dots looking back, but, but at the time, whether you have any, from experience, indicators as to whether it's the right kind of mess or the wrong kind of mess? Well, okay, well, I, I, so there's some evidence and some instinct to support this. Um, I would pick two. The Huggy Row one. The Huggy Row one is when there's silence. When there's silence, it's either because people are afraid to talk or they don't give a shit. So that's Huggy's diagnostic thing, that silence is terrible. Um, and, and, that, and then the other diagnostic is, um, when, since there's always failures, is if, if, at least if you're making different mistakes, that's a better sign than if you just keep making the same mistakes over and over again. So, so I guess those are the two sort of diagnostics. The, the other thing, just one thing, to, to, you know, how do you sort of get out of the problem and get people from getting too depressed? about it. What, this is one thing David Kelly's absolutely brilliant at, and there is some evidence to support it. What David does, and I could have added this, but, but since you sort of, like, you're an entrepreneur, what do you do? Everybody's all upset. And David is so good at calming people down, and, and I finally figured out what he does. He switches time perspective. So if you look at research on human mood, it's actually very well documented. In fact, Danny Kahneman's even done some of this research, that we are most unhappy now, um, actually. Um, essentially, uh, when we look back to the past, it, especially with good mental health, we, we remember the good stuff, and we forget the bad stuff. When we look back to the future, we're optimistic. So what, and this is one of the reasons Jobs was like brilliant at this, that, that what David does is he tells you a story in the past about a time when it seemed like all was lost, and, and we made it through it, and how much we love each other now. And he t- or he paints a picture about how great it is. He doesn't talk about what's happening right now. And, and so I, it's, and it's, a, it's, it's a pretty social, psychologically based trick. And I think, you know, um, as I say, Jobs was the absolute master of that. Ed Catmull at Pixar, you look at his book. Uh, John Lasseter, in particular, absolute master of that. So, uh, so that's one way to sort of fool them, if you will, until they'll move forward. Uh, other comments? Oh, wait, I'm, I'm doing uh, your job. I'm so sorry. we'll go to Daniel uh, Bayoun's up there first and then fix it. Um, thanks, Michael. Um, uh, Professor Sutton, uh, my name is Daniel Beunza. I teach in the management department, and one reason I came is uh-huh. I really enjoy your book on uh, the no answer rule. So, Thank you, um, I think. My, my, interest, uh, my interest is in um, financial institutions. Uh-huh. And um, so I'm wondering, uh, I, mean, I can see how th- that is relevant to banks and you know, trading uh-huh. rooms, etc. I'm wondering uh, whether you have done work on, on banks um, or whether 
the other principles that you are presenting here, one of them seems to be a, a generalization of the no asshole rule, you think would apply better, or perhaps, since uh, it's a mess, now the rule should be some assholes uh, as well as no asshole. Oh, well, you know, if you're asking me to fix the banking industry and whether or not assholes are the root cause, I, I don't know the answer to either one of those. But uh, just, just as a comment, that the, the guy who I, I worked with some and talked to a lot in the U.S. who's most adamant about the no asshole rule is a guy named Paul Purcell, who uh, runs a, a, a CEO of a, of a um, financial services company called Baird. And he enforces a no asshole rule. And the way he defines it is uh, not people who are rude, but people um, who consistently put their own interests ahead of colleagues, customers, in the company. So that's sort of, so, so there's different definitions of what an asshole is. And, and I would think for a bank, rather than sort of like, like, like my sort of sloppy definition in the book of sort of leaving people feeling demeaned and de-energized, I think his definition is better for a bank. Um, so, so to me, I think that you've got to um, look at the nature of the reward system. And, and I'm somebody who tends to be cynical about reward systems. And this, so to go back to Microsoft, since I did have a conversation with them about three weeks ago about their asshole problem. And th their asshole problem is, and it goes back to Bill Gates, who always had to be the smartest person in the room, who always had to make everybody feel bad because he was so much smarter and would put, uh, and, and it worked for him until he realized it was getting in, him in trouble. You've got an organization where that behavior has been rewarded. So, so my answer tends to be, uh, who are your star employees? Are they people who consistently put their own personal needs beyond the greater good? Or are they people who also do, do great individual work and help those around them succeed? And, and I believe, at least, for, you know, cause just like many of you, I've had students go to lots of banks. The old bank that used to be worse at that was Merrill Lynch, is, is, is my understanding. They used to have the worst sort of backstabbing sort of culture. So some banks are better um, versus worse. But you know, to me, I like, I'm making this much progress. Fixing the banking industry, it's just like a nightmare. Um, I, I don't understand how they get to, the, the, the general incentive, of course, is they only have incentive to gamble with other people's money. When they lose, they lose, and they, when they win, they win. It's, it's, they, just don't, they don't get hurt when they lose very much. So to me, it's, there's a much bigger incentive problem than assholes. I can tell that. But isn't that the problem? I mean, they like, like, like they're gambling with other people's money, basically, right? So, that, so I'm just, it just looks to me like a massive incentive problem. And as I say, I'm not an economist, but that's what my economist friends say. Like, I'm not a, a body. Um, any comments on this? Well, can you fix the banking? I, I'd love to be able to fix it. I'm just terrified of them <laughs> because of the other incentive problems. Um, other comments? Oh, good. Sid. Hi, I'm Sid Winter. Uh, thanks very much for the uh, mentions of my work. Uh, I like the, the uh, Catholicism-Buddhism uh, metaphor. And I think I heard you saying that uh, there are situations where uh, uh -huh. you can argue either way. You can, yes. say, uh, you can say more Catholicism is needed or more Buddhism is needed. And uh -huh. the typical reason why more Catholicism is needed is this ident identity issue that you point to. Mm -hmm. That people think they uh, know it all themselves and don't have to take any lessons from the past. Um, I wondered, I wondered, though, about the contingencies affecting, affecting the uh, choice between more Catholic and more Buddhist approaches. Mm -hmm. uh, and, it, and in particular, in my, own, uh, in my own work, the 
the focus has been largely on, on new establishments, on organizations in, you know, which are coming up in new geographical settings. Uh, and are and are intended to be roughly speaking copies of something similar someplace else. I wonder if you have any uh, particular uh, notions about about the Catholicism Buddhism issue in the new new establishment case. Yeah, I, I, but I might have stole them from you, so <laughs> <laughs> so we'll see if I any original ideas. But but one of the things, not just new establishment, new programs. We actually talk in the book about. Um, a, a program in the Girl Scouts, it turns out, and we talk, and we talk about Starbucks too. Our sense, and as I say, uh, we learned this from you, in part, and some of your co-authors, is, is that it's much easier to go from Catholicism to Buddhism than the other way around. So what you want to do, I think I'm stealing this straight from you, is to start with a blueprint and then look for the cracks and then start doing the local adaptation. Is, is that a correct interpretation of your work? That is a correct interpretation. Okay. So, so and, 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 and in every case, we look, we look at it. So the, the, the times when something like Buddhism might make more sense is when you aren't sure what, when you sort of know uh, kind of what the cause of the problem is, but you don't quite know how to fix it. So the example we use in the book is, is that, um, or one of the examples, is that there's a lot of evidence that when nurses get interrupted um, when they're sorting or administering medicine, they make more mistakes. Um, but people have not quite come up with the template about how to fix it. So, so what they did at a little, um, actually a, a kind of a field study or a field intervention in the San Francisco area is they said to each lo- local nursing units and 12 nursing units, um, so what solutions can you come up with so you won't be interrupted? And, and there were varied units, too. And they came up with different solutions. In, in one case, they came up with a room where they do the sorting. In another case, they put on a vest while they were sorting them. And, and in some case, what you're, what you're sort of finding, if you, if you look at the results of the study, at least my interpretation from talking to the woman who did it, is that if, if you're in a situation like, let's say, a neonatal intensive care unit, where you, you actually don't want to take your eyes off the kids, then you would put on the yellow vest and do it right next to them. But it's even better to do it in a quiet room. So if you possibly can, you do it in a quiet room, like in a general sort of, I don't know, intensive care unit or something like that. So, so there is some con- contingencies. But in that case, they needed to do the different experiments to see what sort of worked best. And then maybe they can start spreading a, spreading a, t- a template. But yeah, but you'll notice that two-thirds of that I stole from your work. So... So, so I'm, I'm glad you agree here. We, we agree with you since so we stole your ideas. How about up here? Hi. Thanks for the excellent presentation. Thanks. Um, my name is Roy. I study here. Um, and my question is, I'm assuming you've heard of Paul Graham? Yeah. The founder of Y Combinator, and he's a pretty famous venture capitalist. Um, From time to time, he writes little pieces on startups and Mm -hmm. his philosophy. And one of his pieces was um, why you shouldn't do things that scale, especially for startups. I'm sure you read it. Um, And, you know, one of his examples was, I think it was Twitter. People, Twitter kind of started out, or maybe it was, uh, no, it was Airbnb. They started sending uh, handwritten letters to their first customers. And, you know, you can't scale that up because it would take ages to send that to customers now, but that's something that really helped launch them off the ground. 
So I was wondering um, what your thoughts were on, you know, when you should do things at scale and when you should do things that well, don't scale. Well, well I, I don't know whether I can give a, a gen, general answer that would apply to all situations, but the, the, the general principle that what gets you to one stage is not going to work when things are larger. I mean, the, the, essentially, they had to get some customers before they could move to the point where they went to a larger scale. So to me, that's, that's kind of like the David Kelly example where, um, and, and then we have like another example earlier in the book, one woman, um, um, Mariah Finley, one of my students, she said, you know, we really were great. We would, in the early days of her startup, we'd all sit around the kitchen table in my house and we all worked in my house and there was no communication problems. Now we have to do more formal things like take them out to lunch, ask them how they're doing now that we have 40 people. So that, that idea that what will get you to one stage won't get you to the other. But, but having said that, um, the, the, at least in some of the organizations that are best at scaling, they are constantly asking the question, which is, will this work when we have 100 people or 100 organizations? So Shannon May, who is, uh, I guess she's the chief technology officer, one of the co-founders of Bridge International Academies, when they set up just their first school in Kenya, since their goal was to open 10 really quick, they would do stuff like even though the teacher was literally this far away teaching the six kids, they try to send them the send her the information on the Nook, and they take all the pay the payments from the parents um, on the cell phone because their theory was they were trying to get to just ten or a hundred. So, you know, I, I hate to be a management professor and say it depends, but to me, I, I guess I'm saying it depends. Um, but you want to test things that will get you to the next level, which is what she was doing. Yeah, I thought that was a great post, actually. I, I remember reading that. We had one way up there in the blue shirt. You, that just turned around. Yeah. Um, just, as an, uh, just as an aside, uh, you said earlier... You're going to introduce yourself. A, uh, sorry, uh, Michael, uh, I'm a consultant. Um, you said earlier in the presentation uh, that you thought uh, uh, the environment at Stanford was going a bit entrepreneur crazy. Yeah, and, I did. And, and that uh, you could see a potential crash down the, down the road. Are you seeing parallels to uh, the build-up to the dot-com crash? Are you seeing uh, any similarities? Do you think, what, what, do you think what, ideas that are getting invested in now well, still I, have I, the merit? Well, that, well, first of all, yeah. all predictions about the future are wrong. That's one thing that I've learned. So you should discount anything I say as well as any economist. But I, I just don't understand how the valuations make any sense. And, and, and the venture capitalists are getting really nervous. Um, and, and just and, and some of this is from their gossip. So one of my venture capital friends, who shall remain unnamed, said they're not looking at deals that don't that that won't return within about 18 months because they think something ugly is going to happen. And when and I sue, but but then I have other venture capital friends who say, of course this is just going to keep continuing. But I, I'm just telling you that's just my it's my stomach more than my brain. Even though I can I can um, tell you stories, but. I, I, Everybody at Stanford cannot have a good idea about companies. Most of their ideas are just idiotic. And, and I'm involved in teaching entrepreneurship, and I love entrepreneurship. But we'll sort of go through the periods. But I don't know when it's going to happen. But that's just my gut sort of feeling. Because everybody at Stanford wants to be an entrepreneur right now. And I just don't think they're that smart or there's that many good ideas. I think we're going to come down toward the front now. 
and uh, we'll start. With and, I, and I'm somebody, by the way, who thought that Airbnb and windsurfers were the stu- two stupidest ideas ever invented by mankind. So you should, you should um, consider that. I'm a sailor, by the way. I forgot the North Sail stuff here. Hi. Um, hi. Me. Oh, hi. Hi. I'm, I'm, I'm Susan. Hi, Susan. And um, my, my question may sound fairly naive, but you alluded to the mess that the health care system is in the States. Yes. And it certainly is that way here as well. Um, there are some businesses that we don't have to be in touch with and some businesses and some organizations that as consumers we don't have much choice. Right. How does the you know someone walking into a completely dysfunctional crazy system that's this you know all over the place protect themselves or find a place or have a voice or or have an impact or whatever when it's organized in its own way and it doesn't work and your life depends on it well i mean i wish i could answer that <laughs> question since so many so many of those things are structural that you know to say that you as an individual if you it's your fault if the if a system kills you that's that's deadly right it's your fault you yeah. because you didn't do this I always worry about the system blame thing but uh, at least uh, my friends in the US healthcare system um, will tell me to look at two things one um, if i have an operation look at the i don't know if you have this information here right? you can get the risk adjusted mortality rates uh, you, you, can you get that information in English? You can get that information. In, in the United you States, you can get You can't get your own reports here very easily. Really? Yeah. And, and, it's shocking. And, then, and, and just to give you an indication of that, that uh, I had a, uh, an aortic valve replaced four years ago, and I went to the Cleveland Clinic rather than um, Stanford Hospital because they had half the mortality rate. And uh, well, I'm still alive, so who knows? Um, and, 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 then, and then the other thing is, and there, I think there is some evidence to support this, that, that, that um, you ha- having an advocate for you throughout the process is don't believe anything they tell you. Yeah, well, that, that's the way I am, but it doesn't work in this system. So, 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 my, so, so that's, what my, yeah. that's why my preamble was, if you're in a system that just sucks, you might be able to reduce your probability of being harmed slightly, but you're still in a system that sucks. Yeah. So I'm sorry to be pessimistic, but, uh, but things that don't work don't work. It's, 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 like, it's like if an airplane's crashing, there's not much you can do to stop it from happening, if you're sitting in seat 16D or something. Yes? Uh, no, we're going to have a person. You had your hand up, yes? Hi, I'm Hi. Sarah. I Hi, work, Sarah. Um, as head of compliance for a charity, um, which has got about 4,000 employees. It's an educational charity. And um, just taking on this role, and my question is, um, given... I need to read the book, perhaps, but... <laughs> um, given what you're saying about... Uh, do you have any advice about where to prioritise? For example, when you're scaling up excellence, should, it, should you look for things that are... Um, it, should you look to eliminate the bad things? Should you look to see whether regulatory things actually help an organisation to work better? Should you just look at pragmatism, thinking what's going to get you further in your mission? So what, how does a compliance thing help an organisation? Well, that's a, so that, that general question of, of where, where you start when you take over an organisation that you want to get better. That, so... Um, Gosh, I'm blocking on his name. He's actually, he's actually um, an American who's turned around a couple of companies, but I'll remember his name in a second. So, 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 so he turned around. Um, he did a, a turn around. What's the name of this? Um, um, 
Broken Hill Properties in, in Australia. And he also did a big U.S. energy company. So, and he said he used the same technique each time when he took over the company, which was that um, he essentially um, had, these are big companies, the top 100 people write him, uh, what would you do if you were me? What would you start doing and what would you stop doing and how would you prioritize them? What's the three most? So he basically did the crowdsourcing thing and then he interviewed each one of them. And then he moved forward with their ideas. So he said he had two things. is that he actually got the ideas and then, um, and then he had sort of this sort of buy-in in it. And, and, and that idea... Of uh, when you, especially as you come in as um, I can't believe I can't remember his last name, his first name is Paul. Um, anyhow, that, that when you come in, um, assuming that the people who are doing things wrong um, are all idiots, is usually the biggest mistake. Because usually they know what's wrong, even if they don't know, um, even if they don't know how to fix it. Um, and and uh, you know. Related to this, uh, so, uh, uh, and this is an extremely different situation, but it's, it's worth, this is another reason that, um, that, that, that I like um, um, Ed Ketmel's new book on uh, Disney. So, so Ed and um, also John Lasseter were brought in, one of the reasons they paid so much money for Pixar was to turn around the Disney um, animation studios. And they've done a complete, uh, a complete turnaround. What's the name of Frozen, the new movie, which is an enormous hit and tangled before that? I mean, that studio was a complete mess. And, and, and Ed will tell you, we've done it with all the exact same people who were there before. We just changed the way that they do things. What, one of the things that they did, which I thought was quite interesting, is they had an approval process for what movies and what scenes would go in movies, you know, sort of dailies and stuff where many of the people who were making the decisions actually had never made a film in their life before. And so they removed those people from the process. It's just, just, just an example. But I think that was, Ed is somebody who can actually listen. And this guy, Paul, whose last name I can't remember, is one of those people who can actually listen. And, and, and I know from my, my wife was involved in turning around as a part of the Girl Scouts in the U.S. And she, initially, her first instinct was to want to fire everybody, but she couldn't. So she actually had to listen to all of them and have their ideas, and, and then you get the buy-in. And the other thing they do is, is, is um, if they start feeling psychologically safe, they will tell you who the worst people are. So if you can't fire them, you can at least um, put them in a position where they do less harm. <laughs> because in some organizations, you can fire people. And what, I, I'm not going to name the story, but there's one person I know in academia. This is a little story, but it's an aside, that they couldn't fire him. It's one of my favorite things. And they, but they got him like a really nice office, like all these suites and stuff, really far away from everybody else. So that was one of the most brilliant things I ever heard of. Anyways, so I don't know if that answers your question, but I wish I remember his, his name. I did a blog post on it and everything. Okay. Up here? This light, I can't quite dodge it, so I've got to stay here. Uh, Lily Evans. Uh, Where are you? Oh, Lily. Yes. Oh, yes. Uh, well, first of all, thanks for the book. I've got it. Oh, great. Uh, and uh, just to uh, say, this is through Twitter. I asked Bob to get a book. So I got it via my daughter. Uh, and uh, the question is twofold. One is uh, most of the organizations talk about growth is a good thing. You have never heard that growth is a bad thing. And yet, from some of your uh, points here, growth is not exactly necessarily a good thing. 
And allied to that is uh, the point that uh, it seems to me that with growth comes what, is, what would be called in computer science disgraceful degradation. <laughs> I, it doesn't actually fall apart so that it slowly falls apart. But when it falls apart, it's totally rubbish. So uh, two questions are, why do we all persist yes, from politicians and everybody else that growth is really what we should be doing? And secondly, how do we recognize these moments before the degradation becomes disgraceful? Yeah, well, I, I wish I could answer those questions, but, but I will try. And it, it, it is true, if you, if you look at the, the research on organizational size, that it, it really does look like the bigger that organizations get, the, and it happens at the group level and also happens at, at the organizational level, that, um, that, more, that essentially more energy goes to sort of running the thing and less energy to doing the thing. In terms of there being a tipping point, I mean, to me, one of the sort of diagnostic signs, and this is stolen straight from Chris Fry, is that when everything you try to do feels like you're walking in muck, and it's easier to do nothing than to try to do the right thing. To me, that's a diagnostic sign that things are broken. But I don't know what the absolute scale is because I, 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 one company I worked with for years that absolutely had this characteristic was General Motors. It, 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 it was the General Motors R&D organization. And honestly, that was a system where if you were an employee, it was so hard to do anything it was just better not to do it. And, and I actually came to agree with them. But then Toyota, which has some of its own problem, actually exists and has found ways to avoid it. And, 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 and at least the rule is, and, and I, so I don't, I don't know what the absolute limit is, but, but, but at least the rule is that if, at least if you can push down things further down the hierarchy so people take responsibility so all the cognitive load doesn't go to the people at the top, it, there's some hope. So, but I don't, I don't know the answer to your question. I don't know how big is too big and what the diagnostic signs are. I, I, I wonder if other people in the audience might actually have ideas about this. So, so how, how do you because, Yes, I'm, I'm just actually, kidding. Actually, you, you provoked. My, my, my name is Jonathan Mueller, and I guess I'm a trainer and consultant. Uh -huh. And you, you, to me, you've just hit the nail on the uh -huh. head. It's you can run a much bigger organization if you can decentralize it. But there are challenges in decentralization that it's, 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 it's not as simple as to say... Oh, no, it is not. There, there are you have, you have, it, it places very great burdens on two-way communication and on trust. And you have to get rid of the assholes. You have to get rid of the... Self, you, you can't decentralize to people who are self-interested. Well, I mean, to your, you actually provoke something in, in this I think that we, we use the word uh, sacred and profane, but the more completely people are brainwashed and the more they're on the same page, I think the better it is. I do think this is one of the things that's working with Amazon. Amazon is in so many different businesses, I can't believe it. But this idea of customers really are first. And uh, being cheap, they are so cheap, I just can't e even tell you all the ways they are cheap. But everybody lives that, that helps. The other thing, and this is straight out of the Chris Fry handbook, is very sharp guy. So his argument is that when everybody is on the same time rhythms, it actually reduces the need for a whole bunch of administrative complexity. 
and a whole bunch of monitoring. Be and, and, and actually, so Chris and um, his uh, sidekick, Steve Green, did this at a company called Salesforce.com, a Salesforce huge international company. So they grew the, um, the software development organization from 40 to 600 folks. And he said it was a total nightmare. But what they did was they put everybody on the same time rhythms. So essentially, uh, they'd have a daily stand-up meeting. They'd have a prototype due every two weeks. They'd have a, uh, a demo every month. And they'd release a product every four months. So he said you didn't have to tell everybody what to do because um, everybody was sort of on the same time rhythm. And, and, and my reaction, I thought to that is, since I've been a professor for 30 years, academia is a total mess in all sorts of ways. You know, with all due respect, like the administration's a mess. The, every academic institution, even my sacred Stanford, is just a mess in lots of ways. But the thing that saves, I think, we all are in the same time ribbon: the quarter system, the semester system. Everybody knows when to work, and everybody knows when to screw around. And we know how the students are feeling, whether it's midterms, whether it's finals, if it's the beginning of the term, whether it, with our MBAs, whether it's Wednesday when they're all screwing around and they all have hangovers on Thursday morning. I mean, we, everybody's kind of on the same rhythm. So, so, that, so, so that's one of the things that we hinted at at the book. But the idea about getting people in these sort of um, locked time rhythms might help to some degree. And by the way, that's one reason Chris is having so much problem at Twitter. He's making some progress. Is trying to figure out what the time rhythm is at Twitter is much more difficult where they're constantly doing updates and stuff. But uh, I wish I could answer your question in more detail. And you know, the question of how big a bank is before it's too big to fail, I don't know the answer to that. I'm not smart enough. So other comments and questions? Right. Got so we've got uh, one in the middle here and then um, one on the side. And that might <coughs> be just about it. OK. I'm trying to dodge this light, but I can't get out of it. Uh, we probably can turn it off. <laughs> Paul McGrail, a Catholic Workers Group. Pardon me? Um, Paul, my name's Paul McGrail. Hi. I'm with the Catholic Workers Group. Oh. I worked in the city of London and uh, the, for, uh, for an upstart. Um, and uh, they were very inf extremely influenced by um, Jack Walsh's success at GE. Uh -huh. And um, it, it, I, I suppose there was a cultural difference. But what they try to impose here all the buzzwords and the jargon and the word uh, hot, hot, hot desking, it was complete failure. But I, I was just wondering if you could comment on what, appear, what people assume to be a great American business success story, and that's GE, and, oh. and how he did it. And it well, well, first of all, let me comment generally about, um, and I'm somebody who's committed some of these, these sins already in this talk by telling you examples of great American companies like Google. Um, it's very difficult to figure out um, what is making organizations successful or not. And with general, in General Electric's case, I mean, in my friend Jeff Huffer, who's really snide, I mean, he'll say things like, well, ja um, um, uh, what's his name? Um, Jack Welch had multiple affairs and multiple wives when he was a uh, CEO, so do you recommend that to other companies? I mean, that's the first thing that Jeff would say. And, and then there's another US CEO, um, Herb Keller, who led an airline, Southwest Airlines, that had one of the best internal rates returns for 20 years of many U.S. companies. It's very well documented, I know, because Jeff and my friend Charles O'Reilly did a case on him. And we also talked to two of his former heads of HR. 
he would drink a quart of wild turkey a day and would smoke multiple packs of cigarettes. So if you take the best practices approach, you as a CEO would have drink the quart of wild turkey a day. So, so figuring out what is successful and what isn't just from one case is a very dangerous thing. So in the case, I don't know about hot desking, but in the, in the case of the stacked <laughs> ranking system that they use at General Electric that um, Jack believes in so strongly, we have all sorts of evidence from all sorts of studies, American baseball, manufacturing firms, uh, the, the difference between the pay of the CEO and the rest of the team, that to the extent that there's a larger difference in pay um, compared to the rest of the industry, that, that your team or organization will do worse even though Jack really enforced a system like that. So, and, and, and the other organization, even though I've used them in a complimentary way, when people ask me, well, Google does it, it must be right. I have no, and I love the people at Google. They are, we just spoke to them. They are the nicest people in the world. I would rather give a talk. Even their lawyers and accountants are nice. <laughs> I mean, they, 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 so they really have the no asshole rule at Google. But they have so much money pouring in. They just have, it's, it's like they just got a funnel. It's just shooting in. So it's really hard to figure out um, what works best. And, and I'm a big advocate of, of evidence-based management. And, 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 and what we try to do in this book, and I'm sure we failed, and I try to do in my other books, is to look at the peer-reviewed literature, like Sid Winter's research, and then try to tell stories that's consistent with the peer-reviewed literature and to try to match up those two things. But, but in applying to an individual case, management remains a craft, and it's a very difficult thing to do. It's not like the, 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 the state of evidence-based management does not allow you to simply look up the peer-reviewed studies and then, and then go forth. There's some things we're really clear about, like teams, one thing I would say that Jack Welch got right uh, um, is they did define a superstar as somebody who helped other people succeed and supported the culture, who wasn't just selfish. And I think that was right, and I think there's some evident, other evidence to support, to support that. But yeah, it's really hard to know what uh, General Electric or any other company did that was right. And um, people, you know, they have such strong beliefs. There's this thing called confirmation bias that we human beings believe things so strongly, even when they're completely wrong, it's unbelievable. So, so, so I guess that's all I can say is that's why I believe in doing, looking at the best peer-reviewed research and then telling stories that um, sort of support it. Yeah, but General Electric did, has done lots of things screwed up. What, one of the, a good one, General Electric, that did not work for General Electric is the quality movement, the lean stuff. They tried to install that in the R&D operation. And basically, what happened was the head of R&D lied to Jack and said, we're doing it, and didn't do it. So it shows you how well that worked. Um, anyways, other... Last question, Francois. Last question. Hi, uh, I'm Francois. Thank you for your talk. Um, I had a quick question about, I mean, you said that um, basically you want people to be in the same you know, timeline, I was in the same routine, and kind of being brainwashed. Um, well... Um, and as you said, for Adobe, people leaving when they didn't feel right and in sync with the organization. Um, I'm playing devil's, devil's advocate here, but don't you need to keep some, as you said, assholes around, you know, just for the sake of innovation and having a voice of dissent uh, to, you know... Um, okay, well, I, 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 mean, I, I do have a chapter on the virtues of assholes in our book, just to be clear, since I... And that's Jeff Effer's favorite chapter, my co-author. Um, but um, I would make a distinction between um, somebody who dissents 
because they put you down and make you feel like um, nothing and treat you like dirt, or they are an asshole by the other definition. They do stuff that's only selfish, but let's just take with the people who speak out, versus somebody who dissents for the greater good of the team. And, 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 and this is another literature. There's a great literature on constructive conflict. And it turns out, multiple uh, studies now, both field and lab studies, that when you create an atmosphere where people can fight in an atmosphere of mutual respect as opposed to treating each other with disdain, that, um, that you have a more effective organization. I think we all know this, especially when it comes to creative work. And, and to go back to Pixar, I guess I'll end, I'll end on Pixar. Uh, especially Brad Bird, since we've talked to Brad a lot and we've talked to a lot of people who work with him, this is one reason that they say, besides the fact that Brad is technically perhaps the best person when it comes to making an animated film who's ever lived, that I've heard this from many people, including Ed Catmill and John Lasseter, um, that Brad has this ability to create a world where he, people with him fight with him in a loving sort of way. And, and, and my favorite example, I'll tell you when I'm story, I'll stop, is, is there's a guy named John Walker who has been his producer on most movies. So John Walker is the money guy, okay? Money schedule, and Brad's the creative guy. And when you talk to John, John says, we fight every day in loving conflict over those two issues. And just to give you a little example of, of what they do, um, Brad wanted to spend so much money on The Incredibles that John Walker couldn't stop him. Because, you know, a creative guy, they want to... So, so what John did is John gave him 100 popsicle sticks and told him, because this is better than a spreadsheet, whenever he wanted to do something, they just discussed how many popsicle sticks he had and how many popsicle sticks he had left. I thought that was one of the most brilliant... Especially a guy like Brad Bird is really kind of visual sort of person. So that's how they sort of resolved that conflict. They had a little process. But, but to your point, there's a difference between um, assholes and people who like, fight in a sort of constructive way. And, 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 and we're academics. That's the best thing about academia is to have like, a good argument with somebody. Um, like my, my friend Jeff Effer, I've done two books with him, and I think he's completely wrong about 75% of things that he does. I still think he's... So including the assholes, he, he could, if he was here, he would tell you why assholes are the most wonderful thing on earth, by the way. <laughs> on that note... <laughs> Sorry, you got what I do. <laughs> I don't know. I, think I step on something. All right. Well, could we uh, uh, join together and uh, thank our uh, speaker, uh, Robert? Thank Sutton. you. Thank you for your comments. Thank you.